Well, I'm going to echo what Pastor Kyle said. I, I need you to be with me today. I need some woo-hoo energy. So here's what I want. I want everybody to practice. Say woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Oh, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. It was 82% less than the first service, but let me give you a little bit more. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to make you competitive, but they were better than you. So let's, um, let's, let's hear you woo-hoo one more time. Woo-hoo. All right. You need to woo-hoo with me. Hey, uh, my wife, Corey, and I have loved being here this weekend and, uh, and, and we've loved connecting to those of you that were a part of the marriage conference. So thanks to those of you that were here. I, I tried to affirm you while you were here that uh, just the investment of time uh, and, and resource to get there was worth it. Uh, and if you are a, a married couple or by next fall, uh, you plan to be, like prophetically, you're calling it. Like, I don't even know the guy yet, but we're going to be married. Like, go ahead and register for next year's marriage conference as quick as you can. It's the first weekend of October, Pastor Kyle said yesterday, but uh, you need to be there. Uh, we were encouraged. I feel like our marriage is better, hearing some of the sessions and talking to some of you in the fellowship and just being in the environment with other couples who are trying to grow together, like we're enriched by that. You want to be around people who want to grow. You want to be around people that want to do better, get better, be better. And so um, that's really one of the things that we walked away from over the day and a half or two that we were together for this marriage conference. So uh, props to all of you who were a part of that. And if you weren't, you need to make sure you're here next year. But man, it's, it's been great to be here at Fathom Church uh, and just see all that God is doing here. Uh, we get the chance to travel some, not all the time, not every weekend. We are at our church, which is in Canton, Georgia, just a little bit north of Atlanta, But uh, when we do travel, here's what you need to know. Some of you may know this. You may have a church background or church history that tells you some of this. Not every church is like Fathom Church. Uh, And God is doing something here. And the the expansion and the the renovation and so many of the things that you're doing and uh, the the, the move to two services, you know, I mean, is exciting. And I realize, like, some of you, you're like, oh, two services, I don't really understand, you know, why we had to do that. I liked how I was in one service. I like to get to see everybody, know everybody. Here's what I tell our church. I tell our church that we want it to be impossible for you to know everybody at our church. We want to make it impossible for you. We want you to know everybody in your small group. We want you to know everybody on your serving team. But God's plan for our church, and I believe God's plan for Fathom Church, is that it is bigger and it outgrows your comfort with getting to know everybody that's in this church. And so two services and three services and bigger buildings and bigger places and bigger environments. What Pastor Kyle, I believe, said last week is like the widow in the Old Testament where the prophet came and she only had the jar of oil and she had to go and find empty jars. And she said, like, okay, as long as I've got emptiness, God is filling it. And when she stopped creating empty space, God stopped the flow of the oil. And so I believe at Fathom Church, if we just create more and more empty space, God will fill that empty space. And here's another thing. He probably preached it better. Absolutely. See, you were supposed to woo-hoo right there, but that's okay. (laughs) He probably preached it way better than this idea. But here's the other thing. Do you know that she got the answer that she was looking for through her neighbors? She didn't even have the jars of emptiness that she needed to, to be filled. She had to go to her neighbors. Like the people that God wants to use for the miraculous outpouring of filling here are the people that you and I are already doing life with. Like you gotta go knock on the door next door to you and that's an empty space that God wants to fill but you gotta get them into the empty space here. Like there is something that God is doing here and it's super, super exciting. And, and let me just say that nothing like that happens without great leadership. And you guys have incredible pastors in Pastor Kyle and Taryn. Absolutely. I got a woohoo over here. That was good. That was good. That was good. Uh, you know, he mentioned our group of pastors, and, uh, and we do have a great group of pastors, 12, 14, 15 guys from around the country. Uh, but he, Pastor Kyle is such an encourager to that group. 
uh, and just really speaks life into so many situations and really helps to resource other pastors. And, and, and you guys are very, very lucky. We've enjoyed getting to hang out with you guys this weekend, getting to know them even better. Hey, today I am kicking off this Five Dysfunctions of a Family series. Uh, and, and I love the idea that you're, you're going to spend the next five weeks looking at this family unit because every family is different. Every family's unique. No one or two families are alike. And the idea here is that as we talk about that, every family has a little dysfunction, right? Every family's got some dysfunction. Every family's got some crazy folk in it, right? And, you know, crazy Uncle Joe, crazy Aunt Sally, like you're already dreading Thanksgiving if you get together with your family because of who's going to bring up politics and who's going to bring up, you know, sports and who's going to bring up who didn't show up for Christmas last year. We're going to, I mean, you, you can't even make it to the main course without somebody bringing up something we're going to fight about because there's just craziness and dysfunction in almost every family. And if you can't think about who that crazy person is in your family, bad news for you, you're it, <laughs> right? Everybody's dreading hanging out with you at Thanksgiving <laughs> because you're that crazy person in your family. But every family has some dysfunction. Every family has some craziness. But what I understand about these five weeks and what I get to kick off today is the idea that God desires something special for your family. God desires something unique for your family, for his purposes and for his glory. And it's a bigger story. We talked about this all weekend with marriage. It's a bigger story than you and I can create on our own. And God wants to do something really powerful in and through your family. So over these next few weeks, we're going to really unpack this and look at what is it that God desires for our families. You know, Corey and I have uh, four kids. Pastor Kyle mentioned it a minute ago. We have 13-year-old Cooper, 11-year-old Branson, 9-year-old Tucker, and then little Miss Kinley's seven, and she runs the show. Uh, but our family is fun. It's exciting. There's energy all the time. Uh, but each of our kids, you know, kind of added something new to the mix. Cooper, our oldest, was compliant and a rule follower, you know, a little bit cautious as an oldest child. There was some, you know, some of that. Branson came along, and he was like a, a bruiser, like just, I mean, I, I, for a little while, I called him tugboat. Like, he would just like bounce off walls. He actually, as he was learning to climb out of his crib, we would know he did that because we could hear the sound of him hitting the floor. And if you were watching it happen, like you couldn't get there quick enough, he'd hit the floor, shake his head, and then run off. Like, he's just a bruiser. So like, Corey says to him all the time, Branson, you, you love hard, baby. Like, your hugs hurt me a little bit. Uh, and so that's what he, he brought to our family. And then Tucker... Like, Tucker came along, and Tucker added so much joy to our family. Like, he makes us laugh. Corey cannot discipline Tucker. Like, he's one of those kids that, like, when you're getting on to him, he finds the humor in whatever it is that you're talking about. And so, like, he will literally try to not laugh by holding his cheeks up. Because he knows if he laughs, it makes it even worse. So Corey's like, Tucker, you're doing this. Or I'm like, Tucker, you're... And he's like, I'm not going to laugh. I'm not going to laugh. It's like plastic surgery gone bad or something. Like he's just trying to hold it all together. And I've told him, like, we spank in our house. Maybe you don't believe in that. You call the law. We believe in it in our house. And so I've said to Tucker, listen, I can spank you while I'm laughing. I don't care if you try to make me laugh. Like... But no, Tucker's an incredible kid, like so funny, so just engaging. He's never met a stranger, makes friends all the time. I didn't say this in the first service, but I was thinking about it afterwards. I heard some people talking about kids. Tucker has never met a stranger. So like when we went to my son's lacrosse game one Saturday, we couldn't find Tucker after a few minutes. I mean, it's a small area, but we couldn't find him. So we go looking, we go looking, we go looking. And he comes out of a circle of other kids. And we're like, what in the world 
just happened. And it was a soccer game that had just finished. And Tucker comes walking up to us with a juice box and a snack. And I'm like, Tucker, what, what are you doing? He was like, team snack. And I was like, you're not on their soccer team. Did you play in the game? He was like, no, no, no. I just walked up. They had extras. And they were like, do you want one? I was like, yeah. So, you know, that's who Tucker is. Well, a few years ago, our family, our extended family, got together at a cabin in Tennessee for Thanksgiving. And so I came. My brother's family came. My dad, everybody, we all came together. And my brother has four kids. He has two daughters and two sons. One of the daughters is similar in age to Tucker. And so in the upstairs of that house, up in the loft, there, there was a, a game room. There was a pool table and a ping pong table and some arcade games, and Tucker loved it all day long. Like, wake up, play games until you run out of energy and you collapse and fall asleep. So he, he goes up, and, and almost every day he's playing pool, playing ping pong, playing the arcade games. Well, I walked up there one day while we were there, and I see Tucker. He's playing pool. So he's got the pool stick. You know, he's a little bit shorter at this point. I think he might have been six or seven, a little bit shorter. So he's trying to, you know, get the stick up over the edge of the table to hit the white, the cue ball, to hit the other ball to knock it into the, into the pocket there. But, I mean, he's a little guy. That's, that's a lot to ask for a little guy. So as I watch this transpire, he, he misses, you know, he hits the cue ball but kind of misses the next ball, but the cue ball goes into the pocket. And his cousin Sadie was like, great job, Tucker. That was awesome. So Tucker goes and gets the cue ball out and lays it back down on the table. And this time, he misses it again, makes the, and she's like, great job, Tucker, that was awesome. And then I see that Tucker takes the white ball out, puts it right in front of the pocket, and knocks it in on purpose. She's like, great job, that was awesome, great job, Tucker. Here's what I noticed. I knew that what Tucker was doing was not the rules of the game. I knew that that wasn't going to get him any closer to actually winning the game, completing the game according to the rules of the game. But because he was getting affirmation for doing it the wrong way, he chose to continue doing it the wrong way rather than change what he was doing to do it the right way. And so often in our lives, if we are being affirmed, we just continue to do that behavior to receive that affirmation whether it's right or wrong. People go, oh, you're doing such a great job. Oh, you work so hard. Oh, I love your talent. Oh, I love this. Oh, I love that. And you're like, well, I mean, if people are affirming me, I'm just going to keep doing this because I like the way that makes me feel. And we don't care if it's what we were designed to do, what we've been called to do, what God's purpose for us is to do. We don't care if it helps enrich our marriage, enrich our family, enrich our lives. If it's according to our, we don't care. We just love the fact that they're clapping for us. And so we quit playing the game of life the way it's intended to be played. And we start doing things our own way. Well, my hope in this series is that you would begin to see a clearer picture of what God desires for you to do in life and what God desires for you to do in your family and what God desires for you to do in your home. And so as we talk about these dysfunctions of a family, what we recognize is that God's family has some very specific things that exist within each of these family units that are on purpose trying to pursue all that God calls them to do. Families like this, God's family needs to be unified. They need to have a really proper, unified vision and clear direction for where God's calling them to be and calling them to go. They need to be loving. They need to love one another. They need to be healthy and whole. They need to be filled with grace. How sad is it that so often we, we give more grace to those outside of our home than we do those inside of our home? Right? We're, we're, we're so gracious to the guy on our jobs and the cubicle next to us or the girl in the line at Starbucks. Or, like We're so graceful to those people, and yet to the people that live under our roof, we don't have that same level of grace towards them. But God's family is graceful, and it's also selfless. It's also that it's not about me. It's about us working together, serving one another for the larger purpose, the greater glory 
of God. And so today I want to talk to you about this idea of being unified, the idea that we're all working towards one common purpose, one common vision for our family. Well, the biggest combatant to being unified is a lack of shared priorities in our family units, a lack of shared priorities. What happens is I do what I think is a priority. You do what you think are priorities. Our kids do what they think are priorities. And we end up in this completely different destination. I'm working my way to go this way, and I end up over there. You're working your, your, your priorities to get over here. And we get to the end, and we don't realize how far we've drifted apart because we have not had a shared list of priorities. And so how do we combat against that? You have to have a clear vision for your family, a clear vision. So the question today is, what is the vision for your family? What's the vision for your family? Whatever your family unit looks like, if it's you individually, or maybe some kids or grandkids even that have moved out, or maybe, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a marriage with some kids. Maybe, I mean, whatever your family unit looks like, this series applies to right where you're at. So what is the vision for your family? You know, it's been said that there can only be one vision for any group or any entity. If there's more than one vision, the great pastor T.D. Jakes, preacher, he can, he can say it better than just about anybody in ways like this. But he says where there's more than one vision, there is division. And you can't operate being divided. We want to be unified. And so we need to have a clear vision for our family. So what is that vision for our family. In Joshua chapter 24, I want to I want to start here and look at this story of Joshua. Joshua is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It really is a part of one of the larger stories of the the Old Testament that I love so much. You start there in Genesis, you see these incredible narratives, these incredible stories. You're introduced to some of the famous, you know, fathers of the faith and Noah and Abraham and you see Joseph and the story of Joseph comes alive in chapters 38 through 50. He has this dream. He's he's taken eventually over to Pharaoh and he becomes the second most powerful man. There's a famine. He brings his family to Egypt, and they settle there, and they end up in captivity. And then the book of Exodus is about God using Moses to help set his people free, and they walk out on dry land, and the enemies of, God, the, enemies of the people of God are consumed by the waters as they come back across, and then they spend time out in the desert because God has to get the Egypt out of them before they can walk into the promised land. God has to train them to trust him as their provider so that they can walk into the promised land where God's going to ask them to do some things that are against their nature and against what they understand and have understood to this point. And then Moses dies, and the entire generation dies because of their disobedience and their lack of trust in God. And Joshua comes onto the scene, and he's now the leader of the children of Israel. And he leads them into the promised land, and they go to battle, and they begin to take on new territory. And here at the end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua 24, we have him gathering all these people together, all of God's people together, as he makes this one one final speech before he dies here at the end of Joshua 24. And in this final speech, he sets for them some, hey, here's what you need to think about. Here's what you need to do. Here's the things you need to prioritize in your life. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 14 of Joshua 24. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One of the things that I love here, this picture of what Joshua is doing, is as he comes to the end of, the, of his life, he's challenging the people about how they should live even after he's gone. 
I'm even going to reference something like this about from my own personal family in a little while. So this is not meant to be morbid or you know, create any kind of fear or anxiety in you. But I would say to you, if you've got a little wisdom in your years, you, you've kind of lived a little more life than other people, like take advantage of that and pass on what you've learned to the next generation. Take that and give it to somebody else, right, that you would hand this off to other people so that they see what God has entrusted to you and what you've been called to do and what you're saying that God has called them to do. But what I love here in Joshua is he says that they have a choice. They have a choice in who that they can serve. And he gives them a few examples. And, and I had never really read this or, or seen this as I was reading it until our church, which does some, uh, a specific Bible reading kind of program for our church. When I was reading this a few months ago when we were in Joshua, I came to this and I recognized that there was something that he was saying here about their choice. He said, you actually have a choice on who you're going to serve. He said, you can choose to serve the gods of your fathers across, that they served across the river in Egypt. Or you can choose to serve the gods of this present land of the Amorites where you currently dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as I was looking at this, I recognized that what he was saying related to their choice is that if they chose to serve the gods of their fathers who were there in Egypt, that was about the gods of their past. Now, I don't know what your family history is. I don't know if there's somebody in your family tree, your family history, that has some story of faith. But what he's saying here is that when we were in Egypt, there was a belief system that our, our forefathers, our grandfathers, your, your ancestors, they took on a certain faith system of the Egyptian culture. And you can choose to serve those gods if you want to. You can choose to serve the gods of our past. Or you have a, an opportunity to choose to, to serve the gods of our present the gods of the Amorites who are uh, here in the land that we currently dwell in. So you can choose the gods of the past. You can choose the gods of the present. But then he puts a stake in the ground and he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a future tense to this. He's setting the course for his family to say, we're not going to serve the gods of our past. We're not even going to serve the gods of our present. But we are choosing, if you kind of unpack this in some of the original text here, he says, hey, in a present and future tense, we're going to serve the God, the Jehovah God who has been our provision. We're going to serve that God. And so the question is, as it relates to your family, the vision that you have for your family and for you as an individual are you going to lean back into the past and serve the gods that served you in a previous season? Or are you going to kind of adopt the, the gods of the culture around us? Or are you going to decide, I am going to serve the Lord? You know, I, again, I don't know what your family context has been. I don't know, you know, how you were raised. I don't know if you were raised in church or you weren't. I don't know if your family, you know, stayed all together and everybody had this kind of seemingly unified idea of what the family unit looked like. But as you start thinking about the gods of your past, what did that look like in your home? What did that look like in the family unit in which you were raised? Who, who were and what were those gods? What were those maybe idols that your family lifted up or raised up? You know, in some previous generations, one of the primary things that people worshipped was a good hard work ethic. And I, I think you should work hard. I, I think you are honoring God when you work hard as long as that is not your primary idol. It's not your primary God. That it's I am my provider because I work hard. I work hard enough to be my own provider. But no, if if that's your God, and that was the God of your fathers, the God across the way in Egypt, then that's not a God that can be a part of the vision that you're creating for your family. 
Maybe you say, well, you know, yeah, there was, it was a mess back there, or it was actually good, but I've kind of charted my own course. And maybe the God of the present day, the God of the Amorites, the gods of the present culture in which we live is what you have been worshiping. This cultural norm that there is no right and wrong. Everything is right. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And we'll all end up in that same place together at the end, wherever that is. That's the God of the Amorites, the God of our current dwelling place. But again, even that God, those gods cannot be the foundational truth, the foundational piece of the vision that God has created for us as a family. And so can I stand like Joshua with our family and say, I put a stake in the ground. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. You know, our church in Canton, we, we choose to rally around this passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's a little bit before the story of Joshua, but this is Moses still in charge, and he is actually laying out for the people. Here's what you need to know when you get to the promised land. God is giving you and giving us some decrees, commands, statutes that we're supposed to abide by, and when we get there... We need to know what those things are and why we've staked our lives on those things because our children are going to ask us why we believe those things. I was reading recently that the average four-year-old asks 160 questions a day. That's a lot. That's a whole lot, right? We had several kids in and around four-year-old at one time. That's a lot of questions. My wife was able to juggle that and answer all their questions and also pay attention to me at the same time. I, I was losing my mind. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know where your juice cup is. You need to go ask mom. I don't know where your shirt is. You need to go ask your mom. I, I'm not sure what time dinner is. You need to go ask your mom. Like I, I couldn't, couldn't keep it all straight in how they were asking so many questions. That's what happens. And, and Moses is saying like, hey, here's the deal. When you get to the promised land, your kids are going to ask you questions. They're going to want to know why you're serving God the way that you're serving God. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, even in our present day, our kids, because we are choosing to live our lives a certain way, to be in this world but not of this world, as cliche or as conservative as that may sound, there are things that we choose not to do as a family. And my kids ask us, well, why don't we watch that show? All of my friends watch that show. Why, why don't we do that? Why don't we go there? Why don't we participate in that? Why do we? They're asking us questions about what we believe, and it's my responsibility, it's our responsibility as parents to say, hey, you know, we've chosen to serve the Lord. We, we don't serve the gods of the previous generation. We don't serve the gods of the Amorites. We will serve the Lord, and that means there's some things we just stand for and we stand up for. And if our family has a vision, if your family has a vision, then you begin to answer those questions for your kids. And that's what, that's what Moses said. He said, when you get to the promised land, here's the reality. You're going to drink from wells you didn't dig. You're going to eat from vineyards you didn't plant. And what I recognize is that faith is not something that exists only for me. Faith is something that's been entrusted to me that is intended to be passed on to the next generation. And so I don't know what your family history is as it relates to the dysfunctions of the family unit that you may have come out of. But some of you, I believe, are here today sitting in the seat that you're sitting in because there was somebody in your past. There was a grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, little old lady that taught Sunday school. And she prayed for you. And you're sitting here today as an answer to those prayers. Right? That, that's the reality. That's the truth. 
And so when Deuteronomy 6 says that this is for you, your children, and your children's children, some of you are the result of those prayers that have been prayed. But I recognize that others of you, you didn't have that experience. And you are the first generation of faith for your family. You're writing an entirely new story, an entirely new narrative, so that generations to come will one day look back and thank God for you praying those prayers so that they could sit in moments like this, the sacred moments, and say, thank God for my grandmother or my grandfather. And they're talking about you. It's for you, your children, and your children's children. But he said, when you get there, you're going to be drinking from wells you didn't dig and eating from vineyards you didn't plant. We recognize that we did not get here on our own. We did not get here. on. We're all the result of the branches of our family tree. Anybody remember the family tree projects in school? Like my kids, my kids had that project and like I hated it. Because, like, I don't know. If they don't come to Christmas or Thanksgiving, I don't, I don't really know who they are. Like, I, I, I'm like, just get on the Internet. Just, just search Grandma's name and see if her parents' names come up. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I, but the family tree, the family units, like, these branches come together, come together, come to you. Like, you didn't get here on your own. And the generations that will follow you won't get there on their own. And so we have been entrusted with something to hand off to them. And to get to that place, we must have a vision we must have a clear picture of what that looks like. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 says this. It says, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Your translation may say that where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there's no revelation, where there's no vision, the people perish. They cast off restraint. They just do whatever they want to do. And in our family units, unfortunately, that will happen if we don't have a clear vision from God, a revelation from God that this is who we are and this is who we are becoming. This is who we are and this is who we are becoming. But the reality is this. Hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. You do have to develop a strategy so that you end up where you believe God is calling you and purposing you to end up. You know, several years ago, my, my grandmother passed away this past summer. And, and several years ago, before dementia and Alzheimer's and some of the things that she wrestled with in the last few years of her life, before that really took over, she determined that she was going to sit down, and she did. She sat at her computer, and she began to type out all of the things that God had done for her, the prayers that she had prayed that had been answered, the miracles that she had experienced in her life, those things that God had done where he just showed up in her life and it really forged the faith that she possessed and that she had handed off to her kids and then they had handed off to their grandkids, of which I, I'm one of. And she got done and she printed it all out and she bound it in those things with the little spiral things that you can kind of go and she put that all together and she gave it to all of her kids and all of her grandkids. And it said, Judy Isaacs, my story of faith. She had determined that there was something that she possessed that had to be passed on to the next generation. And the problem that we have, there's this really sad verse in Scripture. It's the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Moses. It says, they knew not the Lord nor the things he had done for them. How in the world do the grandkids and the great-grandkids of Moses know not the Lord nor the things? He rolled the waters back. They walked out of captivity. He took them into the wilderness. He taught them these things, and eventually they would walk into the promise. And how in the Because the people forgot to keep telling the stories. 
They forgot to keep telling the stories. I think so often in our lives, that's, that's what happens. It's not that we don't know. I think some of us just need to be reminded, but we, we forget to pass it on. We forget that where there is no vision, where there is no reminder, where there is no revelation, the people perish. They cast off restraints. They do whatever they want to. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. I need to pull that book out from my grandmother because she's no longer with me and read it and go, God, you're the God of my grandmother. And you're my God. And you're the God for my children. And we put a stake in the ground and we say, hey, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judy Isaacs, we will serve the Lord. But hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. We have to actually have a vision and a revelation and a plan from God to end up where we believe we're supposed to end up. You know, Pastor Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, direction, not intention, determines your destination. Direction, not intention, determines your destination. I have to actually be headed in the right direction to get where I want to go. I can't just intend to get there because I'm just going to end up all over the place, right? Well, I mean, eventually I'm going to make it back home. Well, I've got to point my car in the right direction of my house to get to the destination. And so for us as families, where do you want to end up? You can't just intend, well, I hope we're a good family. I hope my kids, you know, grow up and love God and love us and, you know. My goal for my kids, you want to know what it is? I want them to love God, all right, first and foremost. And I want them to grow up and leave my house and want to choose to come back and visit me. That's, I don't want them to live with me forever, right? I don't want them to be 48 in the basement playing video games. Like, that's just, that's just not my goal for my kids. But I want them, when they leave, to want to come back. And so to do that, if that's, if that's a picture, then we have to develop relationship now where they want to hang out with us and spend time with us and share experiences with us. And so today, I, I wanted to be able to conclude and tell you this. Here's three priorities you need to have. Here's three shared priorities for your family. But I'm not going to say it that directly because I believe you've got to wrestle with this and get the vision from God for your family. But I want to give you some priorities that we have as a family and some things that we have prioritized because they speak to this overarching picture of what I believe God is calling you to for your family. The first is that we want everybody in our family to have a personal relationship with God. We want everybody in our family to have a personal relationship with God. We don't want them to just have a relationship with God through us. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. As my kids get old enough, I want them to love God personally. In moments of worship like we just experienced, I want them to know how to worship God and sing to God and praise God and hear from God as he's speaking to them. We want them to have a personal relationship with God. I didn't tell this in the first service, but a few weeks ago, I sit on this side of our auditorium as well, and a few weeks ago as I was standing there, my 11-year-old son, who's in sixth grade now, he stands next to me, and he was standing there, and I looked down, and he's crying. 11 years old. And so I just kind of put my arm around him. I thought, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the worship and whatever he's experiencing. And so he kind of tugs on my, on my shirt, and I leaned down. I said, hey, Branson, what's up, buddy? That's what he said. He said, Dad, I feel like I'm supposed to go pray for the girl over there on the front row, but I'm scared. Well, I'm not crying. You're crying, Okay. <laughs> And here's what I said to him. I said, buddy, what an awesome moment 
that God would trust you with this moment. I don't know what's going on in her life, but that God would trust you with this moment to just go and pray for her. And I said, listen, every time God says something like that to me, I'm a little bit scared too. I'm a little bit nervous to go do that. I said, but here's what you do. If you want to do this, and I said, if you choose not to, I'll understand. But if you want to go do it, I think you can walk right around the back where nobody gets to see you, and you just come all the way right over here and just say, hey, I felt like I was supposed to pray with you. Can I pray with you? And if she says no, just walk back over here. That's between her and God, right? I mean, I'd have a conversation with her after church. You understand what I'm saying? But I mean, if she says no, like, it's okay. You've been obedient. But if she says yes, then you just pray whatever prayer you want to pray, however you feel led to do that. And when you get done, you just walk right back around here. And I watched him as he got out of his seat, walked all the way around the edge. He came over. He tugged on her shirt. He said, can I pray with you? I feel like I'm supposed to pray with you. And then I don't think he prayed loud enough for her to hear. I think he just kind of bowed his head. You know how you do that when people are like, hey, can you pray? And you're like, yeah. (laughs) Amen, right? You just yell the amen so they know you're done. Well, that's kind of what I think he did. He just kind of lowered his head and he prayed. There was music going on, so I'm not sure if she could even hear him. He said, amen. He didn't even wait on any kind of response where he just walked back over there and he just stood next to me. (sighs) I could see him breathing hard, you know, and I just hugged him. I was like, buddy, that was incredible. That was incredible. I don't want my son or any of my sons or my daughter to love God through me. I want them to have direct access to the Father. And I want them to know that when they pray, he hears them. And when they sing, he responds. Like in a room like this, when people are singing and worshiping, which they're going to come do in a minute, sometimes it's easy to go, well, everybody's singing. I mean, I can't make a joyful noise. It's terrible. It sounds like tires screeching. I know that. I hear myself But I believe that God in heaven is waiting on you to open your mouth and sing. Because he knows you personally. He knows you intimately. He desires to have a personal relationship with you. That's what I want for our family. I want Corey and I to continue growing in relationship with God. We want to have a personal relationship with God. The second thing that we want to have is we want to have a great relationship with one another. I told you my goal for my kids is that they grow up and want to come back. We want to have a relationship with one another. We want to have fun together. We said this during the marriage conference, but my wife is so great about telling our kids, I like you. Like, as your mom, I'm supposed to love you, but I like you. If I can choose, I want to be with you. I want to hang out. I like who you are as a person. Like, we want to have this personal relationship with one another growing together. And the third thing that we prioritize is that we want to have relationship with the church. Not because we're pastors, but because the church was a place that complemented what God was doing in my family unit. And there were some things that God spoke specifically to me in church environments, just like today. Corey and I have talked about it. There's so much in us and in our faith that was forged in moments of worship like we just experienced, and moments of communion, and moments of prayer at the foot of the cross. We want to have relationship with the local church. In the local church, I believe people find purpose when they join these serving teams. They find community when they jump into these life groups. These are not programs to fill up your calendar. That's not why churches do that. That's not why Fathom Church is doing it. They are creating opportunities for you to grow in relationship with God and use your passions and your gifts and your skills and your talents and who you are as an individual to build up other people and to be built up by other people. We want to have relationship with the local church. Can you go to heaven without going to church? Probably. I think so. But the question is, why would you want to? 
Why, why would you want to? Why, why would you not want to be in relationship with other followers of Jesus Christ and bringing people into this place that need to find life in Christ Connect with them in community. Connect to them relationally. Allow them to be strong when you are weak. You be strong when they are weak and do life together. Why would you not want to do that? We want to have relationship with the local church. When I was about 10 or 12 years old, my grandfather had open heart surgery. He, he had had a previous open heart surgery like the week I was born, and he had a diseased heart, and he had some things going on in his body that he just he wasn't healthy but when I was, I guess, about 12 years old or so, he, he had open heart surgery. And it was in that moment when the family was there in his hospital room before they rolled him to the operating room that he was very reflective. If you've ever had surgery, you've ever had any kind of medical scare, medical procedures, or you've been around somebody that has experienced that, he was very reflective, thinking back on his life, thinking back on the things that he had done in his life. And several of his kids were there and they were kind of getting everything prepared to go to the waiting room for this several-hour surgery. And my dad, who was his son-in-law, just happened to be standing there beside his bed. My dad's name is Bill, and so my grandfather looked at him and said, Bill, when you come to this moment, when you come to moments like these, you, you begin to evaluate the priorities of your life. You begin to think about the things that you've done and the things that you've wanted to do and the things that you wanted to invest in your kids. And He said, I've always attempted to live my life with my relationship with God first, my relationship with my family second, and my relationship to the local church third. When he came to that moment, he wasn't talking about jobs or how much money was in his bank account. He wasn't talking about the possessions that he had. He wanted to make sure that he had lived out the priorities of his relationship with God, family, and the church. Well, that's kind of what I just shared with you. And you know why I was able to share that? Because that's how my grandfather lived. And he invested that into his daughter, who was my mom. And she invested that into me. And I'm trying to invest that into my kids. That's what you've been called to do. No matter how old you are, how young you are, no matter what your family unit looks like, you got to have shared priorities. You got to have a unified vision for your family. And maybe mine are not yours. Maybe what I've outlined here is not what you would prioritize, but you gotta have a vision. Without vision, people just do whatever they wanna do. Without the revelation of God, people cast off restraint. They perish eventually. But if you have a vision that will outlast you, the next generation picks it up and runs with it. It's like the baton that's being passed off to the next generation, to the next generation. This is what was given to me. Here's what I give to you. When your children ask, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Because the God who delivered us will deliver you. This is for you, your children, and your children's children. We have a unified vision. We have shared priorities in our lives because it matters. Because it matters. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes there just for a moment as we conclude our time together today. Maybe you would say to me, with nobody looking around, just a personal moment of reflection between you and God. Maybe we'd say, you know what, for me, I recognize that I, I'm not actually in relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe I prayed a prayer a long time ago, or maybe, maybe I've never done that, and I, I want him to forgive my sins. I've heard that that's what this is about. But ultimately today, it, it's even about more than the forgiveness of your sins. It's about his lordship in your life. 
him leading and guiding your life from this point forward. So maybe you would say to me today, Jeremy, I, I want him to forgive my sins and be the Lord of my life. If that's you with nobody looking around, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Put it right back down. Thank you so much. If you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, it's not a salvation issue, but I want my family to live under the banner of the vision that God has given to us. I want us to have the revelation, the vision of God, where we're unified and we have the same priorities and we end up in the direction and the destination that God desires for us. Would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. God, I pray for every person in this place today. God, I pray for every family unit, every individual. God, I thank you for the hands today across these services that responded to the various needs, the various calls today. And so, God, we pray for those who need to accept you as Lord and Savior of their life, forgive their sins, and lead and guide their lives from this point forward. God, we thank you that you have the ability to do what we cannot do and give to us the righteousness of Christ that we may wear it as if it were our own. And God, today we pray for every hand that was lifted for those who desire for their families to be unified around the common vision that you've given to them, that they would live in accordance to who you've called and created them to be, and that their family would exist for a larger and greater purpose than themselves. God, we give this day to you now. We ask you to do more in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.